Can you just wait a dang minute? We haven't even shat down yet. Have you ever shat down in a chair before? You can't just do it all willy-nilly. Gerald, hasn't your son taught you better manners? Don't interrupt. Marjorie, you interrupt me all the time. You are listening to Play on Words on CFUV 101.9 FM, located in beautiful Victoria. Join us as we explore sound art. Marge, what are they talking about? Sound art? In my day, you hung up art on the wall and never looked at it again. That is art. Don't forget your promise for making me do this. I have a few leads on where we can get a couple of motorcycles. Oh, will you be quiet, Gerald? And don't get too far out of earshot, because after that, straight from our studio in beautiful Victoria, we present to you the first act of a woman of no importance. Jerry! Sit back down! The booth window doesn't open! Put on the play on Sound Art 101 segment. My name's Joe Salem. I'm a professor, assistant professor of musicology here at UVic, and I teach music history and music theory. This is Laurel Adam, February 19th at the 8th Street Parkade for Play on Word segment of Play on Sound. Sound art is actually something very difficult to define. I was thinking maybe the best way to define sound art is as a type of music making which is less temporally defined than Mm. typical music. So when we contrast visual art and music, one of the things that artists often talk about is that visual art is is static. You can look at at a picture for a few seconds, for a minute, for five minutes, but your experience of it is not temporally defined by the picture. That's only defined by how long you look at it and what you look for. In music, you're always limited by how the music is unfurling, right? So the music has a certain tempo, it has a certain structure, and say if you only listen to the first 15 seconds of a piece of music, you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't get a sense of the whole. Sound art is this in-between world where sound art is sometimes combined with visuals, sometimes is combined with a specific space. But one thing that it tends to have is a very ambiguous temporal envelope. A lot of sound art is a sound installation. So you might spend a few minutes in the room. You might spend a few hours in the room. Have you, have you guys ever tried playing the railing before? Most sound art composers are pretty flexible as to Playing it. how they yeah, use it. Yeah, it's a sound installation that's supposed to make music when you cover. Yeah. Some form of art. Uh, are there any particular, um, how do I phrase this, are there any particular forms that sound art kind of takes, or are there any particular examples that you can think of that people might be able to visualize or kind of see in their minds? Yeah, I think that um, there are two popular forms of sound art, um, or two popular classifications of sound art. Uh, One would be something more like ambient music or electronic music. Um, So this is music which is um, 
gets its name because it has, again, this kind of ambiguous temporality. It's almost like a background music, and yet it's supposed to affect you and your mood, um, even if at a subliminal level, at a very complete level, something that's very engrossing, even though it's in the background. Um, and then another type of sound art is something which is actually much more uh, related to architecture or to physical space. So uh, many sound art composers do installations, in, in which case they're specifically designing um, their sound uh, environment to a specific space that has um, a, you know, a component of volume, a component of color, a component of light. Um, so very much one that fits in an art gallery better than it fits in a concert hall because they want to play with that space and um, alter that space in a way that's hard to do in a concert hall. I would say that uh, sound art, um, the way I've been talking about it so far, really has its roots in the early 20th century. Um, there were some early composers, uh, in particular the futurists in Italy, who were interested in making music that imitated machines. And the reason for this was to create a music which was evolving side by side with society. Society was becoming more mechanized and more industrial, and, uh, and they wanted uh, a music, uh, they wanted instruments that were able to keep up with this and to mimic these sounds. And from there, this approach to music making uh, continued, especially with the relationship between electronic music and uh, acoustic music. So early in the 20th century, we didn't have a lot of electronic music, uh, but people were building unique and new instruments. Recording technologies and tapes started evolving. Uh, and when we get to mid-century, 1950s, 1960s, that's when sound art really develops as, I would say, a separate mode of music composition. Uh, we start getting electronic studio compositions, um, at the World Fair, you get uh, Verez making a composition which is in a specific architectural structure. Um, and uh, shortly thereafter, you get John Cage, a very iconic composer, um, working with uh, different figures, in including Gordon Uma, who was a faculty member here at UVic, uh, to do installations of, of sound which are almost ecological. Uh, speakers spread throughout a physical space that you kind of walk through and experience and that react to the people in the space or visiting the space. So uh, for that point, I'm not sure how much there's a evolution in the concept of sound art. It's more a evolution in the materials used to make sound art and, and the different types of spaces that takes place in. Is it kind of the case where, like, is there? It sounds like sound art is much more of a artistic kind of experimental like form. Is there like any kind of like commercial sound art, or like does it have that potential crossover? Um, it's interesting because uh, some of the composers I was just talking about in terms of the history of sound art are typically described as rebels. 
uh, or at least as anti-establishment in some way, shape, or form. So it's easy to um, uh, one, one level it's down. easy to Hello. place them next you to or within the context of uh, Have you ever played it? not an anarchist what? politics, but one that is maybe anti-commercial or uh, anti-establishment in some way. Shape. Feel free to I think that would be a mistake. <laughs> uh, it's uh, I'm not sure hand that over and it'll make had an agenda to really fight the system or to create the, something that was against the system uh, in terms of commercialism or in terms of capital or in terms of politics. Um, but I do think they had a specific agenda of fighting the traditional modes of music production. And if you look at sound art, the fact that it's often designed to take place uh, in a certain space at a certain time. Um, this is essentially a way of a composer saying, if you want to hear my work, you have to come here and you have to experience it here. You can't just record it. You can't just trade it. You can't distribute it for free. You have to come and experience it in this specific time and place. And that, of course, has all sorts of ramifications uh, in terms of how we think of music making and music sharing. Yeah, it's, it's much more uh, immediate, I guess. That's exactly right, yeah. Uh, in some ways, it's trying to take back music as a very sensual experience and one that cannot be reduced, right? They control the quality of the experience, the quality of the acoustics, the quality of the sound reproduction. And this, it goes, this goes against a lot of what has happened in the industry of compressing music files, of wearing earbuds instead of, you know, hearing uh, live instruments or sound over large speakers with good sound quality. Um, so in those ways, it's, I guess, anti-industry, but not necessarily in a political sense of hating industry or fighting industry, more in a sense of just trying to preserve uh, the richness of that immediate artistic experience. Have some fun. Let's see how this goes. So I had these two. I need the beat, though. I need that guy. I need a head right on that thing. There we go. There we go. And then try the one at the end. Watch. No, no, no. We have to put on the little dots. There you go. more fun to park, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. I really Thank appreciate you. Cheers. that. Cheers. <laughs> sent out an enthusiastic correspondent on Play on Poetry to ask you, our audience, to make up a poem on the spot. Marjorie, did you remember to bring the snacks? We are standing here in the heart of downtown to ask someone if they are up to the challenge of making up a poem right now. And what might your name be? Oh, my name? Um, I'm Amber. And are you up to the challenge, Amber? How long did we have to do yeah. this community yeah, outreach thing for again? It's not that I'm not happy to do you favors sometimes. Blue. Sugar is sweet, and so are you. Okay, you didn't make that up right now, did you? No, I did, I swear. Okay, well, that was Make Up a Poem Right Now. Great, thank you, Amber.
How long did we have to do this community outreach thing for again? It's not that I'm not happy to do you favors sometimes. When have you ever done me a favor? Now who's interrupting? I'm telling your son on you. And he will give you your allowance until you learn to treat people with respect, Gerald. Marjorie, that is just going too far. You've crossed the line. We are excited to present Play on Play directly beamed into your living room. Coming from you in our studio in beautiful Victoria, the first act of a woman of no importance. What? I already read that like a billion years ago. I'm standing up to get my address book, and I will know not to ask you to borrow money for a while. Knowing how long it takes you to stand up, I don't have very much to worry about. For your listening pleasure, Play on Words presents A Woman of No Importance, written by Oscar Wilde. Lovely day to be out in the garden. I believe this is the first English country house you have stayed at, Miss Worsley? Yes, Lady Caroline. You have no country houses, I am told, in America. We have not many. Have you any country? What we should call country? How quaint that you should ask. We have the largest country in the world, Lady Caroline. They used to tell us at school that some of our states are as big as France and England put together. You must find it very draughty, I should fancy. John, you should have your muffler. What is the use of my always knitting mufflers for you if you won't wear them? I am quite warm, Caroline, I assure you. I think not, John. Well, you couldn't come to a more charming place than this, Miss Worsley. Though the house is excessively damp, quite unpardonably damp, and dear Lady Hunstanton is sometimes a little lax about the people she asks down here. Jane mixes too much. Lord Illingworth, of course, is a man of high distinction. It is a privilege to meet him and that member of Parliament, Mr. Kettle. Kelville? My love, Kelville. He must be quite respectable. One has never heard his name before in the whole course of one's life, which speaks volumes for a man nowadays. But Mrs. Allenby is hardly a very suitable person. I dislike Mrs. Allenby. I dislike her more than I can say. I am not sure, Miss Worsley, that foreigners like yourself should cultivate likes or dislikes about the people they are invited to meet. Mrs. Allenby is very well born. She's a niece of Lord Brancaster's. It is said, of course, that she ran away twice before she was married. But you know how unfair people often are. I myself don't believe she ran away more than once. Mr. Bathnot is very charming. Ah, yes. The young man who has a post in a bank. Lady Hunstanton is most kind in asking him here. And Lord Illingworth seems to have taken quite a fancy to him. I am not sure, however, that Jane is right in taking him out of his position. In my young days, Miss Worsley, one never met one in society who had worked for the living. It was not considered the thing. In America, those are the people we respect most. I have no doubt of it. Mr. Arbuthnot has a beautiful nature. He is so simple, so sincere. 
He has one of the most beautiful natures I have ever come across. It is a privilege to meet him. It is not customary in England, Miss Wellesley, for a young lady to speak with such enthusiasm of any person of the opposite sex. English women conceal their feelings till after they are married. They show them then. Do you in England allow no friendship to exist between a young man and a young girl? We think it very inadvisable. Lovely to see you, Jane. Lovely to see you. Francis, do bring the cushion to me. Right away, madam. Do take a chair. Jane, I was just saying what a pleasant party you have asked us to meet. You have a wonderful power of selection. It is quite a gift. Dear Caroline, how kind of you. I think we all do fit in very nicely together. And I hope our charming American visitor will carry back pleasant recollections of our English country life. My shawl, Francis. The Shetland. Get the Shetland. Of course, madam. Good day. Good day, Gerald. Lady Hunston, and I have such good news to tell you. Lord Illingsworth has just offered to make me his secretary. His secretary? That is good news indeed, Gerald. It means a very brilliant future in store for you. Your dear mother will be delighted. I really must try and induce her to come up here tonight. Do you think she would, Gerald? I know how difficult it is to get her to go anywhere. Oh, I'm sure she would, Lady Hunstanton, if she knew Lord Illingsworth had made me such an offer. I will write and tell her about it, and ask her to come and meet up with him. Your shawl, madam. Just wait, Francis. That is a very wonderful opening for so young a man as you are, Mr. Edbenoth. It is indeed, Lady Caroline. I trust I shall be able to show myself worthy of it. I trust so. You have not congratulated me yet, Miss Worsley. Are you very pleased about it? Of course I am. It means everything to me. Things that were out of the reach of hope before may be within hope's reach now. Nothing should be out of the reach of hope. Life is a hope. I fancy, Caroline, that diplomacy is what Lord Illingworth is aiming at. I heard that he was offered Vienna, but that may not be true. I don't think that England should be represented abroad by an unmarried man, Jane. It might lead to complications. You are too nervous, Caroline. Believe me, you are too nervous. Besides, Lord Illingworth may marry any day. I was in hopes he would have married Lady Kelso, but I believe he said her family was too large. Or was it her feet? I forget which. <laughs> I regret it very much. She was made to be an ambassador's wife. She certainly has a wonderful faculty of remembering people's names and forgetting their faces. Well, that is very natural, Caroline, is it not? Francis, tell Henry to wait for an answer. I have written a line to your dear mother, Gerald, to tell her your good news and to say she really must come to dinner.
Yes, madam. That is awfully kind of you, Lady Hunstanton. Will you come for a stroll, Miss Worsley? With pleasure. Shall we? I am very gratified at Gerald Arbuthnot's good fortune. He is quite a protege of mine, and I am particularly pleased that Lord Illingworth should have made the offer of his own accord without my suggesting anything. Nobody likes to be asked favors. I remember poor Charlotte Pagden making herself quite unpopular one season because she had a French governess she wanted to recommend to everyone. I saw the governess, Jane. Lady Pagden sent her to me. It was before Eleanor came out. She was far too good looking to be in any respectable household. I don't wonder Lady Pagden was so anxious to get rid of her. Ah. Uh. That explains it. John, the grass is too damp for you. You had better go and put on your overshoes at once. I am quite comfortable, Caroline, I assure you. You must allow me to be the best judge of that, John. Pray do as I tell you. If I must. You spoil him, Caroline. You do indeed. Mrs. Allenby, Lady Stutfield, lovely to see you. I hope you like the park. It is said to be well timbered. The trees are wonderful, Lady Hunstanton. Quite, quite wonderful. But somehow, I feel sure that if I lived in the country for six months, I should become so unsophisticated that no one would take the slightest notice of me. I assure you, Mrs. Allenby, that the country has not that effect at all. Why, it was from Melthrop, which is only two miles from here, that Lady Belton eloped with Lord Feathersdale. I remember the occurrence perfectly. Lord Belton died three days afterwards of joy, or gout. I forget which. We had a large party staying here at the time, so we were all very much interested in the whole affair. I think to elope is cowardly. It's running away from danger, and danger has become so rare in modern life. As far as I can make out, the young people of the present day seem to make it the sole object of their lives to be always playing with fire. The one advantage of playing with fire, Lady Caroline, is that one never even gets singed. It is the people who don't know how to play with it who get burned up. Yes, I see that. It is very, very helpful. I don't know how the world would get on with such a theory as that, dear Mrs. Allenby. Ah, the world was made for the old and not the young. Oh, don't say that, Lady Stutfield. We have a much better time than they have. There are far more things forbidden to us than forbidden to them. Yes, that is quite, quite true. I had not thought of that. Good day, Mr. Calville. John. Good day. Have you got through your work? I have finished my writing for the day, Lady Hunstanton. It has been an arduous task. The demands on the time of a member of the public are very heavy nowadays. Very heavy indeed. And I don't think they meet with adequate recognition. John, have you got your overshoes on? Yes, my love. I think you had better come over here, John. It is more sheltered. I am quite comfortable, Caroline. 
I think not, John. You had better sit beside me. As you wish. And what have you been writing about this morning, Mr. Kelville? Oh, on the usual subject, Lady Statfield, on purity. It must be such a very, very interesting thing to write about. It is the one subject of really national importance nowadays, Lady Statfield. I purpose addressing my constituents on the question before Parliament meets. I find that the poorer classes of this country display a marked desire for a higher ethical standard. How quite, quite nice of them. Are you in favour of women taking part in politics, Mr. Kettle? Kelville? My love, Kelville? The growing influence of women is the one reassuring thing in our political life, Lady Caroline. Women are always on the side of morality, public and private. It is so very, very gratifying to hear you say that. Oh, yes. The moral qualities in women. That is the important thing. I'm afraid, Caroline, that dear Lord Illingworth doesn't value the moral qualities in women as much as he should. The world says that Lord Illingworth is very, very wicked. The world says that I am wicked. But what world says that, Lady Stutfield? It must be the next world. This world and I are on excellent terms. May I sit? Is this chair handy? Everyone I know says that you are very, very wicked. It is perfectly monstrous the way people go about nowadays. Saying things against one behind one's back that are absolutely and entirely true. <laughs> Dear Lord Illingworth is quite hopeless, Lady Stutfield. I have given up trying to reform him. It would take a public company with a board of directors and a paid secretary to do that. But you have the secretary already, Lord Illingworth, haven't you? Gerald Arbuthnot has told us of his good fortune. It is really most kind of you. Oh, don't say that, Lady Hunstanton. Kind is a dreadful word. I took a great fancy to the young Arbuthnot. The moment I met him, and he'll be of considerable use to me in something I am foolish enough to think of doing. He is an admirable young man, and his mother is one of my dearest friends. He has just gone for a walk with our pretty American. She is very pretty, is she not? Far too pretty. These American girls carry off all the good matches. Why can't they stay in their own country? They are always telling us it is the paradise of women. It is, Lady Caroline, and that is why, like Eve, they are so extremely anxious to get out of it. Who are Miss Worsley's parents? American women are wonderfully clever at concealing their parents. My dear Lord Illingworth, what do you mean? Miss Worsley, Caroline, is an orphan. Her father was a very wealthy millionaire, or philanthropist, or, or both, I, I believe, who entertained my son quite hospitably when he visited Boston. I don't know how he made his money originally. I fancy in American dry goods. What are American dry goods? American novels. <laughs> how very singular. Well, from whatever source her large fortune came, I have a great esteem for Miss Worsley. She dresses exceedingly well. 
All Americans do dress well. They get their clothes in Paris. They say, Lady Hunstanton, that when good Americans die, they go to Paris. <laughs> Indeed. And when bad Americans die, where do they go to? Oh, they go to America. <laughs> I am afraid you don't appreciate America, Lord Ealingworth. It is a very remarkable country, especially considering its youth. The youth of America is their oldest tradition. It has been going on now for 300 years. To hear them talk, one would imagine they were in their first childhood. As far as civilization goes, they're in their second. There is undoubtedly a great deal of corruption in American politics. I suppose you allude to that. I wonder. Politics are in a sad way everywhere. They certainly are in England. The Prime Minister is ruining the country. I am sure, Lord Illingworth, you don't think that women should be allowed to have votes? I think they are the only people who should. Do you take no side, then, in modern politics, Lord Illingworth? One should never take sides in anything, Mr. Carroll. Taking sides is the beginning of sincerity, and earnestness follows shortly afterwards, and the human being becomes a bore. However, the House of Commons really does very little harm. You can't make people good by an act of Parliament. That is something. You cannot deny that the House of Commons has always shown great sympathy with the sufferings of the poor. It is its special vice. That is the special vice of the age. One should sympathize with the joy, the beauty, and the color of life. The less said about life soars, the better, Mr. Kelville. May I ask, Lord Illingworth, if you regard the House of Lords as a better institution than the House of Commons? Mm. A much better institution, of course. We in the House of Lords are never in touch with the public opinion. That makes us a civilized body. Are you serious in putting forward such a view? Quite serious, Mr. Kelville. Vulgar habit, that is, people have nowadays of asking one after one has given them an idea whether one is serious or not. Nothing is serious except passion. The intellect is not a serious thing and never has been. It is an instrument on which one plays. That is all. The only serious form of intellect I know is the British intellect. And on the British intellect, the bottom of the barrel plays the drum. What are you saying, Lord Illingworth, about the drum? I was merely talking to Miss Albany about the leading articles in the London newspapers. But do you believe all that is written in the newspapers? I do. Nowadays, it is only the unreadable that occurs. Now, I must be off. Are you going as well, Mrs. Allenby? Just as far as the conservatory. Lord Illingworth told me this morning that there was an orchid there as beautiful as the seven deadly sins. My dear, I hope there is nothing of the kind. I will certainly speak to the gardener. Remarkable type, Mrs. Allenby. She lets her clever dog run away with her sometimes. Is that the only thing Jane, Mrs. Allenby, allows to run away with her? Oh, I hope so, Caroline. I am sure. A good day. Ah, dear Lord Elm.
Alfred, do join us. You believe good of everyone, Jane. It is a great fault. Do you really, really believe, Lady Carolyn, that one should believe evil of everyone? I think it is much safer to do so, Lady Studfield. Until, of course, people are found out to be good. But that requires a great deal of investigation nowadays. But there is so much scandal in modern life. Lord Illingworth remarked to me last night at dinner that the basis of every scandal is an absolutely moral certainty. Lord Illingworth is, of course, a very brilliant man. But he seems to me to be lacking in that fine faith in the nobility and purity of life, which is so important in this century. Yes, quite, quite important, is it not? He gives me the impression of a man who does not appreciate the beauty of our English home life. I would say that he was tainted with foreign ideas on the subject. There is nothing, nothing like the beauty of home life, is there? It is the mainstay of our moral system in England. I am afraid, too, that Lord Illingworth regards women simply as a toy. Now, I have never regarded woman as a toy. Women are the intellectual helpmeet of a man in public as in private life. Without women, men should forget the true ideals. I am so very, very glad to hear you say that. You a married man, Mr. Kettle? Kelville? There, Kelville. I am married, Lady, Lady Caroline. Family? Yes. How many? Eight. Mrs. Kettle and the children are, I suppose, at the seaside? I haven't the slightest idea. My wife is at the seaside with the children, Lady Caroline. You will join them later on, no doubt. If my public engagements permit me. Your public life must be a great source of gratification to Mrs. Kettle. Kelville, my love, Kelville. How very, very charming those gold-tipped cigarettes of yours are, Lord Alfred. They are awfully expensive. I can only afford them when I'm in debt. Must be terribly, terribly distressing to be in debt. One must have some occupation these days. If I had my debts, I shouldn't have anything to think about. All the chaps I know are in debt. But don't the people to whom you owe the money give you a great, great deal of annoyance? Oh, no. They write. I don't. How very, very strange. Madam, your shawl. Thank you, Francis. Ah, here is a letter, Caroline, from dear Mrs. Arbuthnot. She won't dine. I am so sorry. But she will come in the evening. I am very pleased indeed. She is one of the sweetest of women. Writes a beautiful hand, too. So large, so firm. Hmm, a little lacking in femininity, Jane. Femininity is the quality I admire most in women. Oh, she is very feminine, Caroline. And so good, too. You should hear what the Archdeacon says of her. He regards her as his right hand in the parish. In the yellow drawing room. Shall we all go in? Lady Stutfield, shall we go in to tea? With pleasure, Lady Hunstanton.
May I take your shawl? John, if you would allow your nephew to look after Lady Stutfield's cloak, you might help me with a work basket. Certainly, my love. Good day, company. Curious thing. Plain women are always jealous of their husbands. Beautiful women never are. Beautiful women never have time. They're always so occupied in being jealous of other people's husbands. I should have thought Lady Caroline would have grown tired of conjugal anxiety by this time. Sir John is her fourth. So much marriage is certainly not becoming. Twenty years of romance make a woman look like a ruin, but twenty years of marriage make her look like something of a public house. Twenty years of romance? Is there such a thing? Not in our day. Women have become too brilliant. Nothing spoils a romance so much as a sense of humor in the woman. Or the want of it in a man. You are quite right. In a temple, everyone should be serious, except the thing that is being worshipped. And that should be man? Women kneel so gracefully. Men don't. You are thinking of Lady Stutfield. I assure you I have not thought of Lady Stutfield for the last quarter of an hour. Is she such a mystery? She is more than a mystery. She is a mood. Moods don't last. It is their chief charm. Lord Illingworth, everyone has been congratulating me. Lady Hunstanton and Lady Caroline and everyone. I hope I shall make a good secretary. You will be a pattern secretary, Gerald. You enjoy country life, Miss Worsley? Very much indeed. Don't you find yourself longing for a London dinner party? I dislike London dinner parties. I adore them. The clever people never listen, and the stupid people never talk. I think the stupid people talk a great deal. Ah, oh, I never listen. My dear boy, if I didn't like you, I wouldn't have made you the offer. It is because I like you so much that I want to have you with me. I suppose. Shall we continue our walk, Ms. Worsley? Charming fellow, Gerald Arbuthnot. He's very nice, very nice indeed, but I can't stand the American young lady. Why? She told me yesterday, and in quite a loud voice too, that she was only 18. It was most annoying. One should never trust a woman who tells one her real age. A woman who would tell one that would tell one anything. She's a Puritan besides. Ah, that is inexcusable. I don't mind plain women being Puritans. It is the only excuse they have for being plain. But she is decidedly pretty. I admire her immensely. What a thoroughly bad man you must be. What do you call the bad man? The sort of man who admires innocence. And a bad woman? Oh, the sort of woman a man never gets tired of. You are severe. On yourself. Define women, Lord Ellingsworth. Sphinxes without secrets. Does that include the Puritan woman? Do you know? I don't believe in the existence of a Puritan woman. I don't think there is a woman in the world who would not be a little flattered if one made love to her. It is that which makes women so irresistibly adorable. You think there is no woman in the world who would object to being kissed? Is that a challenge? It is an arrow shot into the air. Don't you know that I always succeed in whatever I try? I'm sorry to hear it. We women adore failures. They lean on us. You worship successes. You cling to them. We are the laurels to hide their baldness. <laughs> <laughs>
and they need you always, except at the moment of triumph. They are uninteresting, then. How tantalizing you are. Lord Illingworth, there is one thing I shall always like you for. Only one thing? And I have so many bad qualities. Uh, don't be too conceited about them. You may lose them as you grow old. I never intend to grow old. The soul is born old but grows young. That is the comedy of life. And the body is born young and grows old. That is life's tragedy. It's comedy also, sometimes. But what is the mysterious reason why you will always like me? It is that you have never made love to me. I have never done anything else. Really? I have not noticed it. How fortunate. It might have been a tragedy for both of us. We should each have survived. One can survive everything nowadays, except death, and live down anything except a good reputation. Have you tried a good reputation? It is one of the many annoyances to which I have never been subjected. It may come. Why do you threaten me? I will tell you when you have kissed the Puritan. If I may, tea is served in the yellow drawing room, my lord. Tell her ladyship we are coming in. Yes, my lord. Shall we go into tea? Do you like such simple pleasures? I adore simple pleasures. They are the last refuge of the complex. But, if you wish, let us stay here. Yes, let us stay here. The book of life begins with a man and a woman in a garden. It ends with revelations. You fence divinely, but the button has come off your foil. I still have the mask. It makes your eyes lovelier. Thank you. Come. What a curious handwriting. It reminds me of the handwriting of women I used to know years ago. Who? Oh, no one. No one in particular. A woman of no importance. A Woman of No Importance is directed by Aviva Lassard and stars Reed Eckert, Yukari Peerless, Annie Lepage, Fabricio Sosa, Glenn Sheridan, Julie Lee, Iziel Massey, Olivia Sosa, Sarah McKinnon, and Kristen Matheson. Sound by Anne Kristen Blanken. Edited by Reed Eckert, Kevin Hammond, and Aviva Lassard. is the time we turn our ears around and turn to you, dear listeners. We have Amber on the line. Amber? That isn't the same person who pretended to make up a poem and then got it wrong, is it? Now who's being negative? I never said you were negative, Gerald. You did. Ahem. We have Amber on the line. She has called in to get the benefit of Gerald and Marjorie's lifetime of experience. Come on, then. I'm missing my favorite soap for this. Henry was going to ask out Eleanor. I'm sure of it because he was distinctly seen carrying flowers in the direction of her door. And Bob had a huge falling out with his son and his wife walked out on him because of it. I'm missing today's episode for this. Bob? Eleanor? 
Henry, that's not any soap we watch. Those are the names of our neighbors in the retirement village. Yes, I know they are. I live there, too. And we have Amber on the line. She is calling because she feels sad and she can't figure out why. Keep your chin up. Stop whining. We're all sad, but we don't go whining about it. Insert some negative reinforcement here. Sprinkle a bit of positive reinforcement there and goodbye and good night. Gerald, how could you say such a thing to such a lovely young woman? Hello, young lamb. What is your name, dearie? It's Amber. I said that already. If you don't want to tell me your name and remain anonymous, that is fine. But don't get snarky about it. So what are you calling about today? I already said that too. I thought someone over there would actually listen. No one ever listens to me. No one at work, no one at home. I'm 43 years old and my parents still don't even listen to a word I say. I feel like I'm still five shouting, Mommy, Daddy, look at me. Look what I can do. Are we done yet? No, Gerald, we are not done. This was a mistake. You guys are the same as everyone else. No one cares about anyone else. Everyone is so selfish. Now, wait a minute, little speck of dust. But all I've heard is you whining. If the only way you talk to people is to whine, then of course no one's going to listen. Yes, baby hedgehog, what Gerald said is really quite true. Life is full of self-fulfilling prophecies. You think no one cares and listens to you, so you create situations where nobody will. It's not right for anyone to ever ignore someone, but if the only way you are relating to people is with self-pity and whining, then you aren't creating an environment that anybody would want to listen to you in. You have a dog by any chance? What does my having a dog have to do with anything? You'll see in a minute. Just humor me. Do not humor Gerald! Eva, you will regret it for the rest of your life. See, it's just so easy to ignore things people say, especially when they say things like that. It doesn't even enter my brain before it's gone, and it never happened. So, baby mollusk, a dog? Yes, I have a dog, and I am not a baby. I'm 43. I'm an adult. I'm not a child. 43 is old enough to be treated like a grown-up. You just said a lot of words. Give me a second. I just need to remove the unimportant ones. Okay, you said you do have a dog. Does your dog listen to you? No! Weren't you listening? I said no one listens to me. My dog doesn't. My postman doesn't. Next time you're at home with your dog, try this. I'm home now. Perfect. Okay, call your dog over. This is pretty weird, but okay. Almond, come here. Please, Almond. Do as I say right now. Almond, listen to me. Gerald, I don't think the dog is listening. Now, now call your dog this way. Almond, was it? Is he a dog or a nut? Honestly, the names people make up these days. Almond, come here. Try, try it like that. Almond, come here. He came over. He listened to me. Humans are like dogs, honey. They respond to someone who shows confidence and has respect for themselves. Whining is showing no respect for yourself. If you behave and treat yourself with no respect, you may not get it from others. And dogs won't pay attention because they understand they're the leader of their group. You have to be the leader of yourself. 
And then dogs will follow. No, Gerald, then she won't be ignored. I thought we were talking about how she can't get her dog to follow her commands. So, so are we done yet? for listening to Play on Words. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Play on Words, rate us, leave a comment, and review the program at www.cfubpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This program was produced by myself, Jordan Barron, Annie LePage, Tyler Swagar, Rita Eckert, and Max Collins. Music in this episode is performed by Vic Horvath. This episode was created by CFUV's production team. If you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to CFUV.ca to learn more. Play on Words is made possible with the generous support of our friends at Legacy Art Gallery and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm your host, Arcade. Until next time... It's over? Oh, thank God. Oh, stop it, you old fool.